it's very, very hard right now just because the inventory is very low and buyers are just super picky. And so since the market has changed, the buyer has more options. So they want a good floor plan, location, and it's almost like everything has to be right. This is the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan, where we interview local real estate investors and professionals to go over tips, tricks, and investing strategies to help you learn about the business and to enable you to achieve your financial goals. And now, welcome to the show. Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. Today we have Amanda Vane. Amanda is a real estate agent and investor in the Bay Area, and today she'll be sharing her story of how she went from Walmart employee to one of the top performing agents in the Santa Clara County. She'll give us the inside scoop on what buyers are looking for and how we can sell our properties at the highest price, even in a slowing market. If you're new to this podcast, subscribe to the show and leave a review. We release episodes every Wednesday and Sunday and release the show notes on our site, everythingrei.com slash podcast. And if you want to know the secrets of how the top investors in the Bay Area are making huge profits in one of the most expensive markets in the world, download the free Ultimate Bay Area Investing Handbook on our website, everythingrei.com. Enjoy. All right, Amanda, thank you so much for being on the show today. Go ahead and introduce yourself and let us know what you do. Yeah, thank you for having me. So I'm Amanda Vang, and I am a full-time realtor at Keller Williams in San Jose, I've been doing real estate full time for four years now. Before real estate, I was an assistant store manager at Walmart and I went to school for business management with a concentration in operations. I was born and raised in Minnesota. So after I got my bachelor's degree, I moved to the Bay Area and did that for less than a year and realized I couldn't do that for the rest of my life. So at that time, I saw a Facebook ad about real estate, real estate investing. And that was how I got into real estate. So none of my family members are in real estate. So I think this would be a great opportunity for me to learn something new and also how I can help people build wealth through real estate and still have my freedom on how to spend my time. You saw an ad post about real estate investing and you got interested. So what did you do after that? Yeah, so I went to this seminar. After that, I decided to get my license because I wanted to learn more about the contracts, how to go about things, how to work with buyers and sellers, how to pretty much just communicate with people in the real estate industry. After you decided you wanted to go into real estate and you got your license, what did you do to get started to actually sell homes? Or did you actually go through the investing path? Uh, yes, I did. My partner, Michael, and I, we became real estate investors. Uh, we decided to start out buying homes and fixing them, selling them. On our first year, we did a couple of homes. At the same time, I got my license too. So how we worked together was I told Michael to focus more on the investment side and I'll focus more on the real estate side, on the retail side, because Michael will be more on the construction side. I have more the knowledge of the end buyers and what pretty much what buyers are looking for. And so that was how we worked together. But shortly after when... The market kind of changed. I decided to spend more time on the retail. And so at this whole time, did you just like quit your job, cold turkey and go full into real estate? Yes. Yeah. So after the seminar, believe it or not, I went to my boss like a week later and just told him that <laughs> I'm leaving. <laughs> he was a bit surprised. He couldn't believe that one seminar can really change my decision. And I, I've never regret it because... I knew that I, I just couldn't do what I was doing for the rest of my life. And I needed more time, more freedom, because I was working 
when you're on a salary, you work so much like the goal is for you to get your job done. And I, I just feel like I just couldn't get my job done. And especially on retail, it's very demanding from the customers and also your peers. Yeah, I mean, you're standing up all day for like eight hours plus, And you're constantly moving. There's no time to think and work on your own stuff, right? Yes. Yeah. So that was pretty brave of you to just quit cold turkey like that. How are you like sustaining yourself during that time? So Michael, he's an engineer. And so we were just living off from one income. Okay. And then, yeah, during that time, you were building your business. And like you said, you're focusing more on the retail side. Yeah. So once I got my license, I interviewed different brokerages and settled on... Keller Williams, Silicon City. I, I liked it, the environment, the people, because it was really investor friendly. And at that time, I wanted to spend some of my time still on investing too. So I thought it was a perfect brokerage for me. So I didn't go into a team. I wish I would have done that. I think I would have expedited my knowledge. However, I think it's also great that I didn't go into a team because I had to really work hard to find my clients. So my first year, I was able to close on two homes. So I helped to two families. And that first home was a $2.5 million home in Mountain View. Do you want to tell us the pros and cons of joining a team for those of our listeners who don't know what a team is? Yeah. So when you join a team, there's definitely a lot of benefits to that. When you're going into real estate, it's just like a total new career. And so when you have a team leader, someone that you can learn from, it really helps you avoid making all these costly mistakes. Overall, the team can really expedite the process. So for example, maybe it will take a solo agent five years to get to a different level as opposed to someone who joined a team that would just take them two years. Does that make sense? Yeah, because like, I guess you're surrounded with people who have been doing the business for a very long time, and they can help you guide through all these little mistakes. So what are the downsides for joining a team? The downside is that you kind of depend on them. You're a little bit more nervous on branching out on your own and building your business by yourself. But when you have a team, you have someone to lean on. Do you have to pay like a big commission split or how does that usually work? Yes. So in a team, generally it's 50-50. But as a solo, you get full of your commission after you split with your office. So then how did you source your first client? Because I mean, I think $2.5 million is a lot of money. So you definitely got a kind of a big fish. Yeah. So my first year when I started real estate, I did a lot of open houses. I was doing two open houses in one weekend, believe it or not. So I would schedule them from maybe 11 to 2 and then 3 to 6, which was kind of crazy. So I did a lot of that. And this buyer, I happened to pick up from the open house. And it was a weird open house schedule that I set. It was like on a Sunday from 4 to 7. So the client told me that if I would have never done that open house during that time frame, they would have never bought that house. Oh, so you're doing the open house for this $2.5 million Mountain View house? Yes. Got it. And then because they happened to walk through, you said, oh, you don't have an agent? I'll represent you. Yes. That day when I met them, it was on a Sunday from 4 to 7 p.m. when I held it. Because they just got back in town on that day. And the house went pending just like five days after that. So they saw the house and they loved it to put an offer right away? Yes. 
So that's probably a good tip for a lot of people who are trying to get into the business. You don't have to join a team per se, but a volunteer for these open houses because you never know who's going to walk through the door. Yes, that's correct. That's pretty much it for the first year. I mean, I got two buyers from an open house. And then my second year, I started farming, uh, meaning we select an area that we want to work in, do direct mail, door knocking. Did that my, my second year. I did about seven transactions from that. And then my third year, I closed about almost 20 homes. Jeez, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. So it's a long-term business. So you can't expect to get all your business within the first two years. It really, for someone to really trust you and want to work with you, it takes time to build that rapport. And what differentiates you from, let's say, another agent who comes through? I would say the most important would be customer service. So with so much competition from other real estate agents, it is important to really dedicate yourself to your craft. So I believe that great customer service and in-depth technical knowledge of how to manage real estate transaction and how to keep your customer happy, how you're doing it is very important. So small issues can be really magnified into big problems and buyers and sellers are very emotionally dedicated to the transaction. So it is very important to paint a good picture and still make sure you are communicating all the facts. And so I would say clear and transparent communication, a quick response time. I believe are very important in this day and age, because especially millennials, we grew up with text messages and Facebook notification. So every little thing, it is so important to provide immediate response. Especially when you work with out-of-state professionals, sometimes they don't get back to you in time. And it's very annoying because you expect a quick email or text over there. It's really slow. Yes, I, I totally agree with you because some of my clients, they're moving out of the Bay Area and... I don't know. I'm just surprised. Like, like you said, it, it takes like them like a whole day to just respond to my email or return my call when it's like an important referral. Well, I'm always accessible. And sometimes my clients ask me if I ever sleep at all because I text and email them early in the morning, late at night. And so I am proud to say that I do get a full eight hours of sleep. You're just very efficient and very purposeful with your time, right? Like you don't waste it doing other things. You're focused on doing work. And that's where you're getting some amazing results now. Yes. What would you say is the difference between you now and you from two years ago? Because two to 20 is huge. It's a huge difference. Yes. It's definitely knowledge, confidence, and knowing how to spend your time. So when I first started, I went to the meetups. I built these relationships with other investors. And right now, a lot of my sellers are investors. And with this current market, homes are not so easy to sell anymore. Like you can't just put the house on MLS and expect it to sell. And so those people that I'm working with are from people that I built a relationship with when I first started. Yeah. So they're basically, there are other investors who have properties that for some reason they can't sell or they don't have a trusted agent and they know you, they know that you do good work and they've seen your record. And now they're like, Hey, Amanda, sell my house. That's right. And a lot of listings that I've been getting as well are expired from previous agents. They couldn't sell it. And so usually when you help one investor, they will refer you to another investor because they have that trust that they know that the market, it's not easy to sell anymore. Absolutely not. Yeah, you can't just put on the MLS. You have to do some new marketing strategies. 
what kind of strategies do you think that you're doing that's different from other agents who just put on MLS? So to answer that question, every seller is different. Depending on their situation, the type of home they're selling, I usually meet with them, come up with a 39 marketing plan on how I'm going to market their home, pretty much execute the plan. And so one of the things that I do often is I pre-market the house. So I don't wait until the house go on the MLS. I actually reach out to other agents, to other buyers, trying to find the buyer before it hits on the MLS. Because as soon as it hits on the MLS, the days on market starts to count. Exactly. And everyone knows, well, hopefully our listeners know that the longer a property sits on the market, the more, uh, I guess, people expect the property price to go down, right? Like after a month, you should go down 50K, 100K. Yes, yes. This market is very weird. So let me let me give you an example. So there was a house that I just sold in the Corey neighborhood, like north of Santana Row, the 95128. So the sellers, they interviewed a few agents, but they happened to choose me as their listing agent. So and as soon as they signed a listing agreement, I have like one month worth of action items of what I need to do. And believe it or not, this house was almost like a new construction. And it was like the biggest house in that neighborhood. There was no comparables. And we managed to sell this house off market for 1.9 million. And so for investors, time is crucial. You know, every day you have honing costs. And so with them, I knew that I want to find a buyer who want to purchase this house before we even pass final inspection before any of that. And so we, we happened to find a buyer. Uh, They had an agent, the agent reached out to me directly. And before we passed the final inspection, we got into contract already. So as soon as we pass it, we close on the house. So that saved the the investor a lot of time and money in terms of holding costs. And how did you pre-market this home? I will have to go back to my list (laughs) because every house is different. So, but definitely I did do some video in front of the house. I share that in all the Facebook realtor pages. Some agents did reach out to me. I went back to talk to other agents that have this type of clientele and the agents that I have closed deal with and asked them if they have any clients. So it's a lot of just manual work that you have to do. Yeah, you're basically creating your own MLS system where people see your stuff on Facebook. Yes, yeah. So... I advertise it on Zillow, on Redfin, coming soon, call around the neighborhood, be, talk to neighbors, send out postcards, just, just a lot of stuff. I have, there's 39 points in there. <laughs> I will have to go through them. You basically put in a lot of effort to pre-market this home. Um, I don't know if you saw this recently, but I think last week, NAR passed this regulation saying that off-markets can't be done anymore. Apparently, it's not allowed anymore. Like if you're an agent, you're not allowed to have pocket listings or off-market listings. And I'm thinking that's ridiculous. Like what if your seller wants to sell it off-market? You know, like what if their house is just so trashed or they don't want other neighbors to know that um, they're selling their home, especially on the high-end luxury market, right? They don't want, they they do everything off-market and now you can lose your license for it. So I haven't read an article yet. I don't know what they define as off-market because it doesn't necessarily, well, for me, off-market doesn't have to go in the MLS, but I think that if you're still actively promoting it, like, for example, I'm a part of Top Agent Network, we communicate that way, doing email blast, um, sharing with other people, I think you're still promoting the house. So I don't know, I will have to read an article. 
Yeah, I think the whole point was that you you're not allowed to do that, so that everyone has like a fair chance of seeing the property, and that your DOM goes up normally, and not just you know kind of how we're doing. We're kind of skirting the DOM by pre-marketing, and I'm like, I don't know, this is kind of weird, and also it makes all my efforts of cold calling agents kind of kind of moot, right? Because if they can't have pocket listings, then I might as well just look on MLS for all the deals. We'll see how it plays out in the future because I, I don't know. This is like breaking news, you know? So what is your, your split between buyers and sellers right now? 50-50. Wow. I'm very happy that it's 50-50 because I guess when I got into the business, I don't know. I, I always hear people say that you, you want to make sure it's half and half and that you're not just relying on one or the other. And so a lot of my buyers are coming from open houses and just basically just falling off with them and connecting them in a way where you're not just selling them stuff, but really taking the time to understand them, their needs, what they like, because every buyer is different. Their personality, their taste, everything is different. I feel like buyers, especially in this market, when the market's going down, they get a little bit more picky and they're willing to, uh, I wouldn't say waste your time per se, but they do like to look around <laughs> and take their time before making a purchase and yeah sellers are just having a hard time lowering the price of their property because they saw that a year ago it could sell for like 100 150 more than it is selling for now yes uh that is true so it, it is very important when working with a buyer to really understand their time frame and one question i always ask is if we find a home that check all your boxes are you ready to buy now or do you want to wait until that time frame that you mentioned to me. And a lot of times they will buy now if they find that home. It's very, very hard right now just because the inventory is very low and buyers are just super picky. And so since the market has changed, the buyer has more options. So they want a good for plan location. And it's almost like everything has to be right. Now that there are more options, they have the chance to be more picky. And if one thing turns them off, there are plenty of other houses to look at. And so it is just very important to have the good floor plan, the location. And if you price it right as a seller, the house will sell. So let's talk about some specifics from all the buyers that you've helped recently. What are they like mostly looking for? And what are some things that will just kill a house where they will not consider it? All the buyers want to be close to work because they understand that commute will just get worse. And if you're closer to work, the resale value will be higher. And so it makes sense for them. Two things that will kill a house is one, the floor plan. If you don't have like open floor concept or you have a really outdated, I don't know. I mean, some some homes I see have open floor concept, but it's just weird. Like you, you just haven't really seen those kind of floor plan. Definitely kills a house. And the other one is if you, especially for investors, if you remodel a house and you don't do a good job, people see that you're cutting corners, then that's definitely a no for the house. Even if it's remodeled, updated, open floor concept, everything. But if the quality is not there, they won't buy it. Because in the buyer's mind, they're thinking, okay, if this is the kind of the workmanship, what's inside the walls? Like, what else do they do that I don't see on the surface? How about for the exterior? Is there any preference for exterior stuff? Not really, but... The exterior definitely helps bring the buyer through the door. So just make sure your landscaping and everything looks nice. <laughs> First impression is very important. Because I know some people like a backyard because I think they want to have their kids running around playing in it. And if the backyard is too small or there's not enough grass in it, they're like, ah, 
can't help my kids running around this bark or something like that. Yeah, so that's why it's important to have professional photos because they can make the backyard look bigger than it actually does. I see. And how about for sellers? I guess what are sellers' expectations now that the market has gone down? Are sellers realizing that they have to lower their prices, or are they still resistant to change? Half and half, I would say. However, the ones that are very motivated to sell, that are serious, and they have a reason to sell, they will price accordingly and listen to their agent and just sell the house. But if you have sellers that have multiple houses and don't really need to sell, then they tend to want a very high price. And it just doesn't work because they're still thinking about, like you said, price from last year. I mean, I got a phone call just the other day from a mailer I sent out and someone wants to sell me their house, which is like 1,000 square feet, three bedroom, one bath. It got flooded. Like you can't live in this house. And he wants to sell it for $1.6 million. What? Where, where's the house? It's in San Carlos. He says, yes, it's in San Carlos. You can tear it down, build a brand new home, make it $3 million. But I mean, you're right. But still, this is a three bedroom, one bath, 1,000 square foot dumpy house that's flooded and you want 1.6 for it. That's nuts. So I pass on it. <laughs> yeah, some sellers, yeah, they're still holding on to the price from last year. And um, I'm working with a seller in, in the same boat and it, it's hard. But then, you know, there's nothing really that you can change unless their reason change, like their motivation. I mean, it's kind of hard, right? Do you set the expectation that like, let's be realistic, your 1.6 house probably worth 1.2 or do you like kind of just go along with it and just try to market it as is and show him, look, we found the market at this price. It's not working. We got to gotta go down. I would say most of the time I'm very transparent and different agents like to do different things. But with me, I like to set the expectation up front. The last thing I want to do is overpromise and underdeliver because that really hurt your reputation and your performance. And so I'm a very straightforward person too. So I do tell them the truth. Like for example, there is a seller who wants to sell her house at 1.8, but honestly, her house is probably worth between 1.6 to 1.7 at most. And she showed me some comps and they're not recent at all. And so, however, there are some other agents out there where they just want to get the listing. So they would just say, oh, no worries. We'll just put the house on the market based on the price that you want. And then they do that. However, it affects the seller because now they're emotionally invested. And after 30 days, there's no offer or the offer is not coming in at the price that they want. It's kind of devastating. And so that's something that I don't like to do. Yeah. So you have to tell them up front, hey, your price is probably 1.7. Are you cool with that? If not, maybe you have to find someone else to work with. Yeah. So a lot of times I, I do ask the sellers too, like, for example, with this seller, if you can't sell it for 1.8, what is your plan B? And so you have to really ask a lot of good questions to really understand if this is worth your time. And so the seller said, if I can't sell it for 1.8, then I'll wait until next year. I said, okay, cool. So that tells you. They had the option, right? Most people have purchased these properties many, many, many years ago. They have very low uh, mortgages and they have no rush to sell if they don't have to. But it's kind of crazy because like they, they bought it for a low price and they even at the price that they're going to sell it for, they're going to make a million dollar. And it surprised me how like, how much more do you want? A million dollars is like a lot already, like a lot. And so some sellers, I, I don't know, they just want more money, I guess. <laughs> well, like I talked to some people too, and you know, they were elementary school teachers, but they bought their property in Cupertino way back, like early 80s, I think. 
And so they're sitting on, you know, $1.5 million when they sell their home, but they're like, this is our last hurrah. Like they didn't make a lot of money as a teacher, but when they sell this home, they're going <laughs> to, that's, that's their whole retirement. That's all they have left. That makes sense. So you've seen the different markets over the past couple of years. Where have you seen the markets being affected the most? Ever since the market changed, the areas that are getting hit the hardest is cities that are further from companies, tech companies. So for example, like South San Jose definitely got hit very hard. I would say they lost probably maybe almost $200,000 in price range just because when the market changed, buyer have more option in terms of their budget. So for, for example, 1.2, right? Maybe last year you can't even get into a home in Santa Clara or anywhere near there for 1.2, but now you can. Like look at some homes in Sunnyvale, you can buy for 1.2. It might not be the best location, but it is close to work. And sometimes people are willing to make that sacrifice. And so in the homes that are further south, now you can get it for a million, if not nine, around high nines. South San Jose, like Blossom Hill area, right? I see 950, 900. So like, it's definitely possible. Yeah, so it's definitely scary just knowing how much price can drop overnight like that. And also Milpitas, that area, um, home value are just not as high as it used to be just because there's so many new construction going on right now. And I, I would say those are the two areas, South San Jose and Milpitas. However, anything that is, is in Santa Clara, Sunnyvale, West San Jose, those, those are still doing very well. Well, you said your partner is still flipping houses and still on the investing side, right? So since the market changed, we stopped doing that because we don't know where the market is heading. So we're taking a break from it. And I'm, I'm focused on this as a full time. For sure. And it's probably a better strategy, right? Like there's no reason to pick up an investment when the market's going down. Yes, yes. And I believe that being an agent and investor gives me a lot of advantage because I work with a lot of buyers and sellers. So understanding their perspective, where they're coming from, what they're looking for, definitely really helped me educate my investor friends on what to look for, where to buy. So yeah, let's talk about that. When the market does turn, hopefully let's say, you know, spring of next year, where would you go start looking for properties? So we'll have to see how much it turns next year. But right now, Santa Clara is still a very good city. The reason why I say that is because I'm working with two buyers in, in Santa Clara right now. Right now, inventory, it's pretty low. One of my buyers, we made an offer on a house. And it was a fixer upper. We offer 160K over list price. <laughs> we didn't get the house. And there was a total of 17 offers. And so that just shows you that Santa Clara will always hold its value because of the location. I know we definitely did take a dip starting from June, but because where we are right now, there's just not that many inventory. What do you think makes that one particular Santa Clara house so special? Because I remember when I was selling my property back in June, like the summer, it was actually pretty bad for almost all houses in Santa Clara. Yeah, it's just crazy because we're going towards the end of the year. Buyers want to get into a house before the end of the year. And so all the buyers, they were shopping early in the year for this time. And so when you're getting that many offers, it's because a lot of buyers have lost out on other houses. And so they're all focused on one home. Um, there was another house that it's a different buyer. Uh, we made an offer. And this house was, I think, 900 square feet with a, a corner lot about 8,000. It was listed for like a million fifty, 
We offer a million eighty, but it sold for one point two. Wow. And it had a total of six offers. So Southern Claire right now, it's on fire right now. However, whenever sellers flood the housing market, like everyone wants to put their house on the market, that that's when the price definitely drops just because buyers have more options to choose from. But right now we're pretty dry in terms of inventory. For that first house, what were the numbers on that one in terms of like size and bedroom count? Yeah, so it was three bedrooms, two baths, 1,200 square feet, about 5,800 lot size. It has a family room and living room. It was listed for a million ninety nine. Okay, that's cheap. That's why it sold for one fifty above list, right? I I don't know exactly what price it sold for. I think it sold for close to one point three. That's about right for Saint Clair home. And was it completely remodeled? No. It was original condition. Yeah, it's original condition. Wow. And it wasn't in the nicest part of Santa Clara too. Like there, there's um. The airplane noise, you can hear the airplane noise. It flies I don't know, pretty often. Yeah, maybe it works for like a, some travelers or some Airbnb. Who knows? Yeah, so then what I like to do with my buyers, especially if they're buying fixer upper, I always kind of help them calculate, oh, okay, how much it will cost you to remodel the home once you remodel it, if you were to sell it. I know they're not going to sell it, but it's always good to understand how much your home is worth once it's remodeled because buyers, they're all about numbers. And so they don't want to feel like they're overpaying. And so even after we do the calculation, I, I just can't believe that we lost on this house. That's all. <laughs> so Santa Clara is definitely on fire. And what is your buyer profile? Like, where do they work and how old are they? Stuff like that. Yeah. So my buyer, it's a mixture. So some of my buyers are in their late 20s. Okay. So my youngest buyer right now that is in contract, he's 25. Some of them are in their late 30s. So all of them are millennials. And then are they married or are they single? Newlyweds, some single, some married, looking to upsize. And they work uh, nearby, like tech jobs? Yes. Uh, we always wonder, like, what happens to the like service workers or people like, you know, imagine before you were a real estate agent, you were working at Walmart. Like, how would you ever purchase a property here in Santa Clara? There's almost no way. Yes, I, I think that a lot of people that are not, I don't know, service workers, they don't really understand um, their options. Like there's definitely a lot of first time home buyer programs out there that will help you with closing costs. You will only need to put three and a half percent down. However, a lot of those people don't have either don't have enough savings or they're not willing to compromise what they can get for their budget. For example, let's say that someone can easily qualify for 600,000, but they don't want to be in a condo or they don't want to be in a townhome or they don't want to be in South San Jose. So I think when you are not willing to make those sacrifices, it's definitely a lot harder. That's true. And you're just paying rent somewhere nearby. Yes. And then unfortunately, a lot of people don't understand is that they end up renting for 10 years. They, they don't understand how much money is out the door. Yeah. You know, uh, one of my friends is actually thinking about renting a studio in San Francisco. And I think they're paying about 3500 bucks a month. Isn't that nuts? For a studio. That's crazy. Do they work up there? They do. But still, it's like, that's a lot of money. Yeah, that's like 40, yeah, 42,000 a year. That's just crazy. And then look, if you've been living here for 10 years, it's like 420,000. That's like almost half a million. Yes. Sometimes when I talk to buyers too, and I kind of explain and break down the numbers, like they don't even want to face the reality. It's sad because... You don't know what you don't know, but 
I think that it's always good to just be open and see what you can do to also be able to have that opportunity to get into a home if you really want to. So do you have any tips for any uh, buyers like who are trying to get into a property? I think the most important thing is working with the right agent to really help go over the market of how it has it changed and how that affects you and really understand the whole process and the contingencies. I think a lot of people don't really spend the time going over the home inspection report and knowing what they're getting into. I, I would say who your agent is definitely matters. We were used to just putting our homes on the market and hoping for no contingent offers, but it seems like that's not the case anymore. Yes, yes. Oh, and a tip for seller too. Speaking of that. So as a seller, you have to really know what the contingency is for and making sure that your agent control the situation because it can easily get out of hand. Yes, especially when buyers are super picky and they start like, I want this, I want this fixed, I want this fixed. And you're like, dude, chill out. Yes, yes. And plus, some of these buyers don't understand like how much it takes to fix something. Like, oh, there's no AC. They think, oh, it's a deal breaker. In reality, no AC is not even a big deal, right? You can just add it in. Yes. They will make mountains out of molehills over small issues. <laughs> Easiest way to put it. I like that quote, mountains out of molehills. For sure. No house is perfect. I'm pretty sure that as buyer's agent, they always tell the buyer that. However, as a seller's agent, you just have to just kind of put that into their head to the buyers. Exactly. And the buyer's agent, you have to tell the buyer's agent, hey, control your clients, you know, like make them know what's going on. Yes. It is very important who the buyer's agent on the other end, if you are the seller, because the buyer's agent can definitely kill the deal. Yeah. But if you're an experienced buyer's agent, you can calmly tell your clients that these are small problems. Don't worry about it. It's still a very good house. Yes. And like, oh, it is normal. Like, I've seen a lot of homes, older homes are like this, or or even a remodel home. When you go to the house, you have to be able to sell that house to your clients too, like understand what they need and kind of put it together. Like, oh, did you know that they took down all the drywall? And do you know how much that costs? <laughs> like, it costs a lot of money. And they vaulted the ceilings. It's like those little details make a huge difference. And sometimes buyers, agent, they don't fully understand like the cost behind it and everything it's very hard for them to push their clients to pay a higher price for the finishing. That's right. So what are your goals for the future? My goal for the future, so I want to build a team to be able to help more families. I think I, I want to do more. And so I think in order to reach that goal to help more families, I need to build a team. So what's the steps to building a real estate team? So first I need to hire an admin to kind of help me with my back end stuff so I can focus on more sales, be able to connect with more buyers and sellers. And then from there, maybe hire another admin or a buyer's agent. Do you, when you hire them, it's more of like a commission split type of deal or do you pay them a salary to do all this work? I don't know because there are some real estate teams out there where they will pay salary. But I haven't really weighed out you know, the pros and cons. And at this point, since you already have pretty big track record, you wouldn't want to join someone else's team, right? You know, it's good that you asked that question <laughs> because I was actually thinking about it a couple of months ago, I spent some time interviewing other teams, but it's very, very hard because one thing I like about being in real estate is that you have the freedom to do what you want. And, you know, maybe one day I wake up and I don't want to work. I don't have to work. But then when you're in a team, it's like you have to think about them. 
it's very hard. And then also thinking about the commission split because, you know, I'm getting my full commission to now getting half of that up. And it's hard. I mean, definitely there's a lot of pros to be on a team with the resources and their knowledge, but I don't know for now if it's worth the split because I did some calculation. And if I was to join a team, like for example, as a solo agent, I did 20 transactions. If I join a team, probably I will be able to double that, but probably I'll make the same. So I work twice as hard. Now you got to do 40. <laughs> yes. That's a lot. You know, 40 is a lot. Yeah. So, I mean, definitely they're going to have supports and all that. But another thing about me too is that I really like, like every sellers and buyer that I work with, I really spend the time to get to know them, like who they are. And they're not just like a buyer who's buying a house. I don't really see them that way. And so I'm afraid that if I join T, I'm going to lose that touch, getting to know them, who they really are. I mean, 20 is already a lot. So you're basically closing a house every other week, something like that. How do you keep track of all the clients you're helping at the same time? Um, I don't know. Like, I'm always on my phone. And I guess the good thing is that I don't have kids. I'm not married. And so real estate is really my passion. And I think that's the reason why I'm able to do what I do. I don't know. I just do it. I do have a transaction coordinator who does all my paperwork. However, any communication with the seller and buyer, everything comes through my phone. So I do communicate with them. Yeah, I guess just staying in touch as often as possible is pretty good. Yes. So what tips do you have for brand new people who want to get into real estate? Some tips. Decide if you want to be a solo agent or join a team. But I think that will come down to your goals. Like, what is your goal in real estate? Because there's so many different avenues. You, you have to really know what you want in order to really find what you need. And if you can go back in time and give yourself some advice, or if you can give some advice to your younger self, what would you say? As a solo agent, I wish I would have at least joined coaching to begin with. So during my end of my second year or third year, I decided to join Tom Ferry, like a coaching program for real estate agents. I would say if you decide not to join a team, make sure you have a coach that holds you accountable and help show you the way to succeed. Were there any like key tips that you learned from that coaching program that you felt boosted your business? Yeah. So with these coaches, it really depends on who your coach is too. So they definitely give you some insights of how they do their business, how they were able to help other students. And so I think having that, that knowledge and their experience to get you where you want to be, that helps a lot. So, but you also have to be coachable because some people, they do coaching, they're not coachable. They don't get anything out from it. So they will give you like an action item of what you need to do. You have to do them. If you don't do them, you cannot expect results. Do you have like an example of something that they told you to do? Yeah. So for example, at that time, I needed to create a newsletter, send it out to my database, also do direct mail. And so it might sound very basic, but as real estate agents, we get so busy that we don't even want to do any of these work. However, what ended up happening was she told me, okay, this is what you need to do. You need to reach out to your title company. You need to do research of the local printers. You need to find out the post office, like what's the ETA of the delivery, all of that. And then you have to put your list together and then you have to create a campaign 12 months out. You need to figure out what you want to do. And so like they really break everything down and just give it to you. Okay, you just need to do the work. Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, they tell you what to do. And the good thing is, I guess, since you're paying for coaching, they're going to be there to like follow up with you to make sure you're doing it. Unlike just, you know, listening to something like a podcast or taking an online course where you have no accountability. 
Yes. So Tom Ferry has two different types of coaching. I definitely recommend them. There are a lot of coachings out there. However, everyone kind of do something different. For example, like Brian Buffini, he does more of spare influence where you uh, work with the people that you know. Um, Tom Ferry is more social media, spare influence, like everything all together in a nutshell. So you just have to really find who you can connect with. Do you think coaching is expensive? Yes, <laughs> it is expensive. However, how I kind of see things is that I just need to close one deal to pay for coaching. So for example, Tom Ferry has two, two tiers. The first tier is the elite where you do coaching every week for 30 minutes. And that costs about $1,000 a month. The next tier down is called core and that's twice a month and that's $500. It's actually not as bad as I thought. You know, there's other programs out there, especially in the real estate investing space. That's like $30,000, $80,000 to be part of the programs. Yes, but I think probably those returns are much higher. <laughs> it depends if the market's hot or not. If the market's hot, you make a lot of money. If the market's down, you can lose the money. <laughs> yes, but I think one thing in this market, whether you make money or you lose money is really the knowledge and experience that you had through the whole process. Because once the markets pick up, like you know exactly what to do already. And so it's always good to be positive. Because if, if you think about, you know, all the things that are going on, you might just be depressed, but you just have to be positive. That's good. What markets do you usually focus on? So I work in the Santa Clara County. So my office right now is in San Jose. So anywhere in the South Bay is where I work in. So San Jose, Santa Clara, Lapitas. Is there a difference between something like Secor and Silvar? Like, does it let you go to different territories or does it not matter? Uh, so Secor is based out of the South Bay. So, so Silvar is based on a peninsula. I don't know if that has to do something with the MLS. I don't know. I'll have to find out. Yeah, because I mean, I have my key. I, I have a license as well, but I, I mean, I don't know anything, man. I'm part of Silvar because my dad's part of Silvar and I heard about Secor. I, I have no idea what the difference is. I don't know, but the reason why I'm with SCORE is because they're based out of the South Bay and this is where I work. And anytime I need anything or training classes, it's very easy for me to go to. Gotcha. All right, Amanda, thank you so much for your time. How can people get in contact with you? Yeah, so my number is 650-457-9333. You can text or call me if you have any questions regarding real estate whether that's buying, selling, or investing, feel free to reach out to me. All right, Amanda. Well, thank you so much for your time and thank you for giving us an update on the Bay Area market. Thank you for having me. All right, take care. Okay, bye, Sean. Here are some of the key takeaways from this episode. Working with a team has its pros and cons. If you're new to the business, you need to show up. Amanda got her first big break when she volunteered to host an open house for another agent. By sacrificing her weekends in the past, she now has a steady stream of clients who need her services. This is a long-term business. So focus on building rapport and always providing excellent customer service. To be competitive, you need to be fast with your responses. And when you're selling your house, you need to work with a great agent that can get you top dollar, even in a shifting market. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find the show notes and other episodes on our site, everythingrei.com slash podcast. If you live in the Bay Area, join our meetup group where we meet up in San Jose at meetup.com slash everythingrei. And if you thought this episode was helpful, let me know what key takeaway you got and share this episode with a friend who's interested in real estate investing. Thanks and have a great day.
This was another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a five-star rating. It'll take less than a second, and it'll help a lot. You can contact me at seanpanrealty at gmail.com. That's S-E-A-N-P-A-N-R-E-A-L-T-Y at gmail.com. Thanks, and have a great day.